wherever you may be around the world. And thank you for your company once again on truthtoyou.org. That's truth2letteryou.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. That's jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skobak. Shalom, Jano. And shalom, everyone. Good to be here. Good to have you back, my friend. Of course, we are continuing in our series exploring the book of Psalms, chapter by chapter, and asking the questions, who composed the psalm? What is it about? And uh, what was happening in the life of the author at the time of the composition? How does it apply to us today? Also, what would he, what would Christianity have us believe about each psalm? And, you know, how does that deviate from the original intent. Now, uh, this week, we are up to Psalm chapter 12. Shall I read it, my friend? Yeah, it's pretty short. It is pretty short. It's not, it's not yeah. a long one at all. It begins to the chief musician on the uh, Sheminit, right? We've, we, now, this we came across this, of course, in uh, chapter 6 as well, an eight-stringed harp, a psalm of David. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases... For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and a double heart they speak. May the Lord cut off all Wow, that hurt. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips and the tongue that speaks proud things, who have said, With our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? For the oppression of the poor. For the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I will set him in the safety for which he yearns. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver, tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord, you shall preserve them from this generation forever. The wicked prowl on every side when vileness is exalted among the sons of men. Michael. Okay. Um, one thing I think that you know we've probably seen uh, in the twelve psalms that we're doing, that we've done, is that just about every single one of them um, deals with uh, David's concern with the wicked, mm-hmm. um, either contrasting them with the righteous or just bemoaning, you know, his having to <laughs> to be at the receiving end of the wicked. Um, so it's interesting that that seems to be a recurring theme just about, I think, every single psalm that we've done so far. It is a recurring theme, but the formula of this, uh, this chapter seems to be a little bit different. Would you agree? In what way? Well, uh, there are things about this that I find uh, interesting, particularly uh, where David invokes the words of God. God, seems, God is speaking. So, uh, David would have us understand. It says, for the oppression of the poor, for the sighing of the needy, now I will arise, says the Lord. I I don't know, but have we encountered David having God speak in the first person in any Psalms prior to this? Well, that's a good point. Not that I recall. Not that I recall. I think we we have seen David crying out to God. um, And David, I think, sometimes describing from his perspective what God either has done or what God should do or what God is is going to do. Um, I I don't remember um, any a, a statement really that's been made by God directly. Mm. So that's uh, an interesting observation. It is different. Well, let's talk about that when we get there. I'll, I'll uh, let you continue with the preceding verses. Well, first of all, it's not really clear 
if this has been prompted by some experience that David has gone through, it is, we see, I mean, there's no question that this is a Psalm of David, although it's it's not clear. I mean, and we've seen in previous chapters that you sometimes have to really speculate um, in terms of what historical, what, what life event in David's life might have prompted the particular psalm. And, and usually we were not on solid ground. Usually it was very speculative. Um, sometimes it does spell it out. Here it, it certainly doesn't seem to be clear. And it very well not, may not be uh, reflecting on something that actually happened to David. He may be reflecting on the, either the state of the world when, when he was living or his projecting in terms of what uh, might be taking place in the future down the road. It's sort of vague in terms mm-hmm. of what the context is here. What is interesting in terms of, I guess, some of our ammunition, and you pointed this out, is that this is the this is one of two psalms where the um, choir leader or the conductor. It's not really clear what this first word in Hebrew means, lamnatzeach. Um, but it usually refers to either the musician or the one that's directing the musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's on this instrument called the Shminit, which is the eight-string instrument. And this is the only psalm other than Psalm 6 where that happens. And so, if we're going to analyze this psalm, that might be an important clue um, in terms of how to look at this psalm, because it seems to be paired um, with Psalm 6 mm-hmm. in terms of that. I'm going to just read it again verse by verse, and I'm going to read it from a different translation that I prefer, actually, over... Well, I just read it from the New King James, as I usually do. Uh, and what are you going to read now? Well, now I'm going to read the Jewish Study Bible. This is the... Um, uh, okay, the JPS. Ju- the JPS. And, uh, you know, we, we use the, uh, uh, the New King James um, Study Bible because of, you know, any connection that we might find... In regards to Christianity, honestly, there's there's absolutely nothing in the study notes or the cross references, and I think we can we could probably leave that altogether as far as Christianity is concerned. Now, I prefer this translation. It says, "For the leader on the Shminit, a Psalm of David, uh, help, O Lord, for the faithful are no more; the loyal have vanished from among men." Men speak lies to one another; their speech is smooth; they talk with duplicity. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, every tongue that speaks arrogance. They say, by our tongues, we shall prevail. With lips such as ours, who can be our master? I think that's a much better translation. Would you agree? Um, you know, it has its pluses. Um, <laughs> I personally, <laughs> I, you know, in this psalm specifically, when we get to the last verse, um, I, I found about 100 translations. It's it's such a difficult enterprise to um, take a text which is so open to multiple translations mm. and then just to pick one. Mm. So uh, yeah, I mean it's a, it's it it seems good. Yeah, I mean okay. I, I wouldn't. Okay, I'm not going to throw it out. There's one thing I think that comes up in in the beginning of the psalm that I believe touches on a theme in Christian theology, which is. Um, and I'm surprised that, that none of the Christian study Bibles that I referenced um, make the connection. Noted this here. They connected this here. The idea of um, the impossibility, the, the reality that there are no good people. You know, there seems to be a, 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 an assertion that 
uh, you know, Paul makes in Romans. Hmm. But it, it really comes through in, in a lot of, you know, the tulip Protestant theology, yep. the, the T standing for total depravity. Hmm. So, when, when it says here that, you know, the pious are gone and, and the, the people of faith are no longer in existence, and it, it paints a really bleak picture of mankind. Mm-hmm. And and it really is a psalm that's um, you know that that seems to at least lend itself to this theology of human beings just being hopeless and and there's no one good. That's there's, a good there's point. There's no one that's righteous. That's a good point. So, uh, why would they not harness that? Well, I, I suppose um, you're you're referring to Romans chapter three, where Paul cherry picks from I don't know about six different psalms, I think, and glues them all together. But this is not one of them. Uh, no, and and that's primarily where where that theology comes from, right? Right. I wouldn't expect it necessarily to be in Romans, but you would think that at least in a Christian uh, commentary they would note this. They would say, "You see, uh, there aren't any good people. They're finished. They're out of the they're out of the picture." Hmm. And I, I haven't. I, I checked probably a dozen commentaries to the to the Psalms from a Christian point of view, and this, they seem to just ignore this. And, and I, I thought it would have been a, um, you know, a, 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 a ripe ripe for the pickings for them. Hmm. Um, so that was my starting point when I looked at this Psalm, and I, and I, I feel that maybe maybe I'm going to explain why they didn't go for this, but. I think that just logically, when the psalm psalmist King David here says that the um, pious uh, people—it's not really clear if it's pious one or the pious people—but the pious are, are no longer. Well, that implies that they were here at one point. So I guess it would not be a very helpful passage to employ because it seems to be implying that at one point there were these pious people and the the people of faith uh if they are no longer then they must have been at one point so i think that may be one reason why this psalm is not helpful and also um the psalm here seems to say that like we've seen in many psalms god is going to stick up for those people that are being oppressed by the wicked so the psalm does seem to if not in the strongest terms the psalm does seem to contrast these totally wicked people the people that are portrayed here as being uh immoral and not pious and not of faith and people who are arrogant etc and somehow god is going to protect others from them and it seems to therefore distinguish between the the wicked and the others who are apparently not so wicked. Hmm. Uh, so that might be a, a second reason. The third reason is that the one thing I did find in, in almost every Christian commentary I looked at, and of course in many Jewish commentaries, is that the language here is a bit hyperbolic, meaning that when it says there are no pious people anymore, they're all gone, uh, it doesn't really mean that. It's, it's really an exaggeration. What it's really saying is that you know, th- that the world has been so denuded of righteous people, it seems as if they're all gone. Mm. Um, it would be really a sort of a ridiculous statement to make because obviously David is not considered, David it, it specifically is called uh, pious mm. in the yeah. scriptures. Yeah. Right, and so, um, and, and he's not going to be speaking about himself here, he's speaking about others 
um, who have who are no who are basically corrupt and bankrupt morally. So it, it's hard to really say that this is painting a picture of humanity in general being totally bankrupt. And I think the the last thing I would share on this is that when you read the context of the psalm, the the general flow of the psalm, it's not weighing in um, in terms of uh, the existential condition of mankind. It's not a psalm that is trying to teach us about what people are at their core. The psalm is really painting the picture of people that have gone off the path, people that have really taken a wrong turn. So it's one thing to speak about, you know, to assert, like Romans does, that by nature, people are all just lost. People are all wicked. It's not the context of this psalm, and it's not speaking about human beings in those terms. It's basically saying that the the world that I guess David is describing here, and again, it doesn't seem to be saying that this is the condition of every generation. Mm. It seems to either be speaking about the people at the time he was living, where because most people, I guess, had become so – and it's interesting, by the way. He doesn't say that uh, the world is full of wicked people. It just says that the pious have disappeared. Mm. Now, that's – you know, you don't have to be uh, – you know, pious not to be wicked, meaning you could be a, a decent person, right? Just because you're you're not a, a, a robber and not a thief and not dishonest doesn't mean you're pious yet. Mm. Pious piety is a level that goes beyond a basic decent human person. So the, the the psalm would not be helpful in painting a picture of total depravity by saying that the pious have disappeared. Um, you know, that's a pretty high level to reach. I think he's basically saying that it's it's gotten so bad that it looks like there aren't any the Dave, the david is saying i think so yes mm, yeah. i think that, or he could be he could be painting a picture of another generation meaning he may be speaking about um, you know that, that there'll, there'll there'll come a time there'll come a time when it's going to get so bad that it will look like mm. the pious have all disappeared mm. so again it's not totally clear from the psalm if he's speaking historically about his time or he's speaking about, you know, there'll be times in the future when it's going to look like this. There are going to come times when it's going to be slim pickings in terms of uh, pious people that are totally faithful. Now, what I, what I found really interesting, if it is, you know, whether it be uh, 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 David referring to uh, his time or referring to what he believes will be uh, what the future will at some stage represent, the thing that really I found interesting was where from from where is David quoting God? Because of the groans of the plundered, poor, and needy, I will now act, says the Lord. I will give him help. He affirms to him. So where 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 is uh, David quoting? Is he is he quoting something that God has said, or is this a a, a private revelation to to David? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, we believe, first of all, that Psalms is written not with prophecy. At least this is traditional Jewish view. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the traditional Jewish take on the, we call it Tanakh because th there are three main sections. And you actually three, see this division in, in the book of Luke as well. You know, you have the, the five books of Moses, yeah. what we call the Pentateuch, the Torah. Then there's the prophets and then there's the writings. Mm -hmm. 
And so the, the traditional Jewish thought distinguishes between the, the, the degree and clarity and intensity of pro- prophecy in each of these writings. So the Torah is seen as traditionally, it's seen as basically a, a word-for-word revelation by God to Moses. Moses is receiving a crystal clear revelation where every word basically is what God revealed to him. And it's because of that clarity that the five books of Moses is the only source of law that we have. We don't find any law in any other parts of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Uh, The prophets are basically there to um, chide the, the people who are not following the laws and to encourage them to get back on the program. Right. But they're not, they're not promulgating any new laws because the prophets uh, – we're told, for example, that Moses received his prophecy in a, in a state of being awake. He was awake. He mm. was totally clear, whereas the prophets, the rest of them, all had their prophets and visions and dreams. And they had to essentially put the message of those visions into their own words, and that's why no – prophet writes with the same style because it's their personal style that's being imprinted on mm-hmm. the revelation they received. So, the but prophecy is pretty strong because they're getting a pretty strong and clear image in this dream or vision that they're having. But the the writings are what we call written in Ruach HaKodesh with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And it's considered to be a less clear um, form of revelation, meaning that here it's Basically, the, the person becomes inspired by God to compose these writings. And so, it's less directly revealed, but there is some revelation going on. And so, I would imagine that David um, you know, is speaking with that kind of source or that kind of authority in, in the sense that uh, as someone who's being inspired by God, he's, I, I believe he's in effect speaking on behalf of God here. Hmm. And he's saying, you know what? God has seen so much um, plunder of the poor and, and the groaning and sighing of the needy that David sees God standing up and, and saying, look, I'm, I'm standing up for, the, for these people now. I can't take it any longer. So, well, let me ask you, as, as a righteous king that David is, he has license to do that, to – I'm not, not to say that he's putting words in God's mouth, but he's he's really quoting God as saying uh, X. As as a as a righteous king, he has license to do that. Well, again, I, I I don't know if I would necessarily take it as a direct quote because, again, I, I, as far as I understand, we don't see Psalms as God revealing these quotes directly to David. So I'm imagining, and I hope I won't burn for this. I'm imagining. <laughs> That we see David here as someone filled with God's spirit mm-hmm. and, and is, is inspired by God. And I, I believe that there, there is, it is – Psalms is poetry and the poet has certain poetic license. And I believe that the inspiration it's, – it's a godly inspiration that David is led to, in effect, uh, put these words into the mouth of God as if, as if this is what God would be saying. David is – is um, getting the his impression of how he's being inspired by God is that God who would see what's going on would see this these travesties of justice. God can't do anything but stand at this point and proclaim, "I'm standing up, and you know I have to put a stop to this." Is so also, I don't think, yeah. As as an alternative, is is it also possible or, or fair? 
um, to uh, imagine that David has, with with these concerns in mind, spoken to uh, the prophets that were of his day, Natan, for example. Uh, and this may have been a response via the prophet, and uh, and thus David may be quoting him. I, I would say it's not impossible, but I I, I, I don't see the need to go there. Um, you know, again, I, I don't have any problem with David poetically putting these words into the mouth of God. I don't think mm. that, um, you know, I, I I don't think that he's trying to create a false impression. Oh, certainly not. That, no, I think I think what he's what he's spoken is is what we certainly understand uh, of the character and nature of God in the greater. Uh, context of, of the Tanakh, certainly, certainly in uh, from the prophet Isaiah, um, but to go back from from David's time, and I, I and maybe you can think of another verse, but I had to go right back to uh, Exodus chapter three, uh, verses seven to eight, and it says, uh, "The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows." So I have come down to deliver them, and on it goes. And that, so that's a great point because David uh, is aware of those verses. Mm, that's right? right. Yeah. So David, you know, has two things now at this point. He has his knowledge of scripture. He sees that that there's precedent that you know after seeing you know some immense wickedness going on, mm. we see that there's precedence for God. It is yeah. saying exactly these words, and I believe again. I, I see. I never had the experience of being filled with God's Holy Spirit mm. like David was. So I don't know exactly how that impacts how that would manifest. Yeah, yeah. But I'm just imagining that it he, it allowed him, and that's why I don't think he's overstepping his bounds here. I think that that level of divine inspiration allows him. Um, without having the same verbal uh, revelation that Moses received, or and the, the prophets didn't receive that either. Mm. Um, but I, I think that, that that degree of divine inspiration, plus you're making a good point, plus the, the idea that this is not something that is without precedent, he's able to, I, I believe, put these words into the mouth of God. Now, it, it could be that uh, others would take this differently, and see this as actually a direct quote from God that somehow David is aware of, either as you're suggesting maybe from a, a prophet who told him or in some other way. Um, I don't know. I don't hmm. know. It's interesting, though. And as I said, I, I do believe this is the first time we see uh, in the Psalms, we see uh, David uh, quoting God directly or, or seemingly putting words into the mouth of God. Now, this is not a problem, as you pointed out. It's, it, it's absolutely within the character and nature of God, as we understand. Um, it, it gels completely with the greater context of the Tanakh. Uh, even Moses reiterates the verse that I just uh, read out, Exodus chapter 3. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 26, when we cried out to the Lord, uh, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out uh, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, with great terror and signs and wonders. Uh, and so it's uh, he's not he's not introducing a new concept of the character of God uh, by any means. But it's just interesting that that uh, that he uh, seems to quote him directly. Yeah, and it, it is because in the previous Psalms also. Which all dealt with the machinations and the the horrible doings of the of the wicked. God does step in. There's mm. always the the 
you know, um, you know, the appearance of God to right the wrong, to to save the oppressed, and um, you know, so it's not just that we see in the scriptures themselves, like in Exodus chapter three, where God Himself declares that, but we see throughout the book of of Psalms so far, our first twelve chapters, that's exactly what God is doing. He's he's stepping up for the oppressed, especially mm. when they're poor and downcast. And I think you're right. What's unusual here, at least in terms of the text, is that David actually has this as a quote, speaking actually in the name of God, God speaking, mm. which which is unusual. And I guess the, the the question, and it's a good question you're asking, is you know, it, did God actually say this? Is this something that well, and, and know, it has to be asked because the following verse, verse seven, says he then goes on to say the words of the Lord are very pure; that they're, they're pure words. Uh, silver purged with an earthen crucible refined sevenfold. So he's quoting the words of God, and then he says, and the words of God are very pure. I, I think, by the way, that that's um, very closely related to a passage, I think it's in chapter 19, if I'm not mistaken. I think actually, um, so off the top of my head, I think it's Psalm 119. See, if you go to, to chapter 19, which is actually, in many ways, it's close to 119, but in verse um, 8, um, the teaching or the law of, of God is perfect. It renews life. The decrees of the Lord are enduring, making the simple wise. The precepts of the Lord are just, rejoicing the heart. The instruction of the Lord is lucid, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, abiding forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, righteous altogether, more desirable than gold, than much fine gold. Sweeter than honey, than drippings of the of the comb. Mm. Um, you know, he speaks here about God's word as um, you know, pure and wonderful. I, and you're right that that theme comes up again in Psalm 119. I think several times actually. Yeah, the verse I'm thinking of, in fact, is 140. Your word is very pure; therefore, your servant loves it. So I think there, uh, my feeling is that he's not referring back to that quote from verse 6, the one right above this, where he has God speaking directly. Uh, I think he's speaking here in general in about general the words sense. of God. Uh-huh. I, I believe so. I believe so. Um, and what's interesting, maybe I'll, I'll mention this now, is that one of the very, very clear themes of this psalm, I mean, it... it it comes out so powerfully, mm. is the image of words and language. Um, you know, one of the, it's almost this um, back and forth because the, the psalmist begins by speaking about the lying and arrogant words of the sinners mm-hmm. and contrast those with the pure word of, of God. And it's interesting that in verse um well, it's five in the Hebrew Bible, mm-hmm. where where the wicked say that um, by our uh, tongues we shall prevail, with, right? And, with and lips such as ours, who can be our master? Who can be a, a, our master? Meaning that they're they're in a sense putting themselves above God. And the Talmud actually says in Tractate Arachin that one who speaks evil is as if he has denied God. And they quote this verse, which says, we will make our tongues mighty 
and our lips are with us, who is over us? Meaning that there's no one over us. They're mm. declaring themselves as having no one over them. They're the top of the crop. And, and, it, would, and it would seem the opening verses, then uh, such climate of individual results in uh, the plundered, the poor, the needy as a result. Because these people who are... Uh, uh, you know, who say by our tongues we shall prevail with our with lips such as ours who can be our master, they take advantage uh, of the weaker people. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, one of the um, beautiful commentaries to this psalm is from Rabbi Shimshon Rafal Hirsch. Mm-hmm. And he, he says that, look, th- this psalm is painting a very bleak picture of the moral climate um, mm. of, of the time it's speaking about. And he says that the the psalm here chooses to highlight um, the the really the most terrible and dangerous symptom of moral corruption, mm-hmm. and so it chooses to focus on the depravity of human speech, um, because specifically speech is a gift from God. You know, the the Torah says that the world was created through speech. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting also that. Um, according to Unclus, Unclus was this righteous convert to Judaism. He was uh, responsible for the first serious translation of the scriptures into Aramaic. And when man is created in the beginning of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, and it says that he became a nefesh chaya, a living being. Mm. So, Unclus translates that into Aramaic as ruach nemalala, a speaking spirit, a speaking being. Mm. Meaning that he says that, what defines us, our humanity, is not our opposable thumb. <laughs> he says that what makes us human is the fact that we have the power of speech. And he, he, said it's, he says that speech is the, the, one of the noblest and highest aspects of who we are as human beings. The most beautiful things that we can do in life are through our speech. Prayer and, and study and expressing love and helping other people and building them up and um, you know most of what we do as human beings we communicate not through our touch um, you know we communicate mostly through our speech and um, it what's terrible here in this psalm is that that high and potentially elevated faculty that we have which is really the essence of our humanity is corrupted to the extent that people are using it to flatter other people, to be dishonest, mm. to um, you know, to to, to to commit every kind of improper use of speech, and what's interesting is that on the Jewish Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur, mm. so in the liturgy there's a, a recitation of what's called the Vidui, the confession, and it's a long, long list of indiscretions that we commit, and if you look at this list. The vast majority of sins that are mentioned are verbal sins, are misusing the power of our mouths, mm-hmm. um, you know, to swear falsely, to use, um, you know, to speak evil of others, to slander others, to lie, to deceive, to flatter, mm-hmm. to be, all kinds of misusing our power of speech in the most debased kind of way. And um, it's interesting that if we go to Psalm 34, the psalmist asks the question um, hypoth- uh, rhetorically. The psalmist asks, who is the person that wants life? Who is the person that really wants to have real life, ideal living? 
And then the answer is the one that guards their tongue from speaking evil. That's verses 13 and 14 in Psalm 34. Um, so, the idea of speech having both these uh, potential manifestations where speech can be the highest expression of who we are as human beings – or it can be a way in which we debase ourselves to in the worst possible way. Look, we're living in a society now where you know our virtual communication, the digital technology that we use now, we see that the the culture is toxic. That you know people are you know speak to each other in the most vile, nasty, hostile ways. Mm. Um, there's no civility. There the, the, are communication has become toxic to a degree which is, uh, it, it looks almost irredeemable. I mean, it looks like we, we, have, we formed a culture um, where communication now has become so debased. Um, and so, that's what David is really uh, painting a picture of here in this psalm, of, of a society where the corruption has been is illustrated really by the the way people speak and mm-hmm. the way they use their mouths, and um, it, it's just it, the mouth. It becomes this horrible, pernicious tool in the service of selfishness and um, depravity. Mm. And um, what I find interesting now, this is very, very speculative on my part. Very speculative. But we have this instrument that's used in this psalm, and it was also used back in Psalm 6. Yep. And uh, both of these psalms, this is something that Hirsch points out, um, are really psalms where you know, the writer has to try to regain their hope in God's saving power after you know, the reality seems so hopeless. You know, that was the situation back in Psalm 6 where, you know, the, the, the situation is just persecution and persecution and persecution, and it looks like, you know, there's no hope. And there has to be some hope ultimately in God redeeming. And the same thing here, that, um, you know, it, it looks like a world where he says, no one's left, everyone's, everyone's gone. Mm. And, and the, the eight-stringed instrument is significant because according to um, at least rabbinic teaching, the normal a lyre or harp that was used in the temple had seven strings. And so the eight-stringed harp w- it was considered to be one that will be used in the messianic age because eight is always the number of transcendence. Seven is right the number of uh, nature, the number yeah. of the, the, our natural world. And then the eighth day. The eighth day. And mm. uh, and so, this is going beyond the natural realm to the supernatural realm. And what happens on the eighth day is the circumcision. And so, I, I think that you have maybe one of the things that's going on here is there's a allusion to the number eight meaning circumcision – And we have this image that we have about Moses. He speaks about himself as having arels fasayim, uncircumcised lips. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea of being uncircumcised um, in the Bible is always contrasted to the one that's circumcised. Mm -hmm. And um, the prophets speak about, for example, the uncircumcised heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, and yep. Jeremiah speaks about it in mm-hmm. verse chapter 4, verse 4, in chapter 9, verse 25, 
this is considered to be um, you know a description of someone who is uh, corrupt because their heart's uncircumcised. Mm. And I think maybe what's being alluded to here, this is maybe a wild speculation, is that you need to have the antidote to uncircumcised hearts and uncircumcised lips is that they be circumcised, which is the the, the covenant of the number eight. Hmm. And so what, what you have contrasted here is the um, the lying, flattering lips, the, the, the tongue that's used in the most debased kind of way contrasted to the pure words of God. And I guess the the prayer that these people who have gone off the deep end because mm-hmm. of their debasement of language, that they get their lips circumcised. <laughs> Speaking of, of, of eight, let, let me go to verse eight and ask you this question. Uh, it says, you, O Lord, will keep them guarding each from this age evermore. The them. Is that in reference to the words of the previous verse, uh, the words of the Lord are pure words, or is it in reference to the the uh, uh, the groans of the, the the plundered, the poor, the needy in verse six? Who is the them in verse eight? Yeah, it's not a, a thousand percent clear, but it it just seems to me that it's referring to because the 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 words in Hebrew there are words that are usually used for God's protecting and guarding uh, people that are. Um, uh, really downtrodden. Mm-hmm. So it, it could, I mean, grammatically, it could refer back to the previous verse of God's words that he'll keep them, he'll preserve them. Which, um, which we know, it, it of just, course, obviously is the case. For sure, mm-hmm. 100%. But I, I get the impression that he's speaking about, um, you know, God stepping in here to ultimately uh, keep and to preserve them, or or the you know the the um, the people that are being oppressed by the wicked, mm-hmm. but I I I can't prove it. It's, it's not one hundred percent clear, is it? It's interesting. It's because, not clear no. because it can be understood both ways. Um, I think it can. Now, lastly, and uh, in this particular translation, uh, it ends on a low note, doesn't it? And this is um, twelve verse nine, the last verse. On every side, the wicked roam when baseness is exalted among men. You know, this is you know a doozy of a verse to try and translate. Um, I'm just going to, if you'll indulge me for a few Please. moments, um, share with you a, a list of the translations. And I didn't really look at that many, but it's such a difficult, the, the words here are just very, very obscure in Hebrew, very obscure and difficult. The first uh, part of the verse is not that hard. Um, that the wicked go around, the wicked walk on every side, the wicked circle around. That all the translations basically get this pretty much within the ballpark. They're, mm. they're not radically different. But the um, the last few words of the of this passage, kirum zulut adam, almost impossible to translate. So hold on to your hats. <laughs> um, Rabbi Dov Lerner translates this as. Um, all around go the wicked. They have dug deep pits for the sons of men. I mean, that, that, that's what these wicked people have done. Um, the art scroll translates this as the wicked walk on every side when the basest of men are elevated. Now, that's not so unusual. Many of the translations go like that. Mm-hmm. The living Nach, which is an interesting work, 
has the wicked circle round like leeches hungry for human blood. Leeches. Like, that's leeches. <laughs> that's interesting. There's, as far as I know, there's only one other verse uh, in the Tanakh that mentions leeches. I'm going to find that while you're talking. Keep going. The Radak has this as the wicked circle around, and when they rise to power, it's a disgrace to mankind. Um, The Mitsudot, um, the wicked circle like – now, this is interesting. They they refer here to a wild beast called the Re'emim. You find this in Numbers chapter 23, verse 22. So the wicked circle around like this wild beast called the Re'emim, ready to devour human beings. Um, the Koran Tanakh, on every side the wicked strut freely when vileness is rated high among men. The Hirsch translation, mm-hmm. even if the lawless shall walk on every side and baseness shall be exalted among the sons of men. The Ohel Yosef Yitzchak, which is the Chabad translation, I thought was interesting. I'm looking the at wicked, that now, yeah. The wicked walk on every side. When they are exalted, it is a disgrace to mankind. That reads well. Hmm. Um, Rabbi Y.Y. Iskowitz, <laughs> not well known, well known. All around do the wicked strut when depravity becomes exalted among the sons of men. Um, the, Keter, the Keter Judaica Tanakh for we are surrounded by evil men walking around us. The proud, wicked seek to ridicule mankind. Um, the Mitsuda Tanakh, the wicked walk on every side when the scorned are exalted among the sons of men. The Keter Crown Tanakh, the wicked walk on every side when the baseless are exalted among the sons of men. And finally, the JPS, which I think you just read, on every side the wicked roam when baseness is exalted among men. Hmm. Um, so these are not all very different, but some of them are quite different. And what I found interesting was that there was much less variety or variant variations when I looked at the Christian translations. They were all pretty much um, within the ballpark. I looked at the New American Standard, the English Standard Version, the New Revised Standard Version, the mm. New American Bible – the NIV, the New Century Version, the Amplified Version, the New King James Version, the Christian Standard Version, the King James Version, all basically uh, pretty much saying the same thing. Um, but it is a very, very difficult um, phrase to, to really render pr- properly. I think what happens sometimes is that uh, I'm pretty sure this happened in the Christian translations that since it's almost impossible to translate, I think they all just based themselves upon the earliest translation, which was the King James Version, right. yeah. and they didn't want to differ too much from that because mm-hmm. they probably had no clue what it really meant. But still, uh, the, the <laughs> leech doesn't appear in, in any other translation uh, that you read. It's just interesting that that popped up. The verse that I was thinking of was Proverbs chapter 30, verse 15. The leech has two daughters. Give and give, they cry, uh, and so on and so forth. But I don't, <laughs> I don't know that <laughs> leeches appear anywhere else in the Tanakh. I, I don't think this was a very literal translation. I think he was no. taking a lot, of, uh, a lot of liberties. Yeah, it's it's a nice, compact psalm. I think that you know the the theme is is important. Um, I think that it, there's a lot more here that uh, I was not able to figure out. I don't really think I have a great reason. I mean, Rabbi Hirsch 
suggests that there's a, there's a similarity between the Psalms in terms of why they're played on the Sheminit, um, because they basically are messianic in the sense that when will you know evil finally be addressed fully? You know, we know that that's the world are only going to become righted. Um, you know, at the at the conclusion of history, I think until that happens, we're going to see uh, suffering and and you know people misbehaving. Mm. So, the, but the problem is, I, I would say that so many psalms have the same theme. Why just these two get the shminit? There may well be a connection. Yeah, I just, I just haven't found anything that's compelling. No, fair enough. But that is uh, Psalm chapter 12. It's not a long one uh, at all. It's reasonably short. Psalm chapter 13 is, is even shorter. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be there sometime I like in the near future. short and sweet. You like short and sweet? Psalm, I do. Psalm 13. That'll be short and because, sweet. Because, Jono, how are we going to do Psalm 119 in one show? Uh, you, know, you know, I'll tell you how we're going to do it. We're going to go through it letter by letter. <laughs> we'll cross that bridge when we get there. <laughs> no, because it's divided up into the into the letters of the. Uh, uh, oh, you mean a, a letter a week? Yeah, that's what we'll oh, do. Oh, wait, okay. I that's think so. <laughs> then, then they're short and sweet as well, and, and that'll keep us going to what 2030, I think. About about that. <laughs> <laughs> Rabbi Michael Skobek of Jews for Judaism, the website JewsforJudaism.ca. Thank you, my friend, for coming back on the program. It was a pleasure. It really was. You've been listening to Truth To You with me, John Ovandor. Join me on the coming Truth To You Israel tour. Details at our website truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letter u.org. Thank you for your company and I hope you'll join us again. Until next time, Shalom. Shalom.